The broadcast of NFL games around the country today will follow a predictable script. As the program begins, cameras will focus on the stadium where the game is to be played, but what else are viewers certain to see? The skyline of the city where the game is played. A city's identity is commonly linked to its tallest and most expensive buildings. So viewers will see colossal stadiums. And they will see skyscrapers, as we call them. They're unlikely to see any church buildings. Now it happens, I think, occasionally. I think I've got somewhere in my memory banks that that was the case somewhere once. But unlikely, and this really actually says something, maybe more than we catch. But our own city, we go back to the 19th century, and I'll just take the Twin Cities as our city here, but most of these pictures of Minneapolis, but as we go back to the the late 19th century, early 20th century, what you saw rising in the sky was largely church spires and towers. There were other buildings that were tall as well, but this really attracted the attention as you came to our cities in that era. Some of these buildings still exist today, and the spires and towers reaching into the sky. The Basilica in Minneapolis and the Cathedral in St. Paul, impressive buildings on the skyline in a sense. This set in a location where it could not be missed for many, many miles, and seen on the river where there was great traffic at the time of its building. This was the late 19th century, the early 20th century. But by the mid-20th century, our skyline began to be dominated by another building, and that is what we call the skyscraper. Grand towers bespeaking capitalistic commercial enterprise here the first baptist church beginning to be dwarfed and losing sight uh, inside the city maybe the epitome of it here in manhattan how it just it gets dwarfed by these tall towers that rise up for the making of money and the housing of people and our skyline now is dominated by these towers it says something about where we've come and who we are and there's great pride in erecting these great buildings. It's a pretty impressive skyline, really, for a second tier, second size city in the United States. But it's a beautiful skyline, and I think we should see the beauty in it. But it's interesting, the tallest building in Minneapolis was built in the 1970s. There's been a lot of other towers fairly close to it, and the footprint has grown pretty dramatically over that time, but it's not gotten any taller since the 1970s. I know guys that worked on the IDS and welded the beams, and they tell me I never go in there. (laughs) I think they're kidding. (laughs) But that is a long time back. What dominates now? What's the new thing? What's the 21st century bring to us? Perhaps the end of the 20th, but into the 21st century. What are we seeing? Buildings, what buildings are we seeing in our city? Now they are the sports facilities. The entertainment world is making its statement around our city. Over a billion dollars on that glass roof piece there in front of you. To put that together in the face of these grand towers that say Minneapolis, St. Paul. These great stadiums now dominate. There's nothing innately wrong with any of this. There's nothing innately wrong with grand buildings, although a case could be made against some of the dishonorable means of paying for them, but we'll leave that alone. Our skyline does bear silent witness to the city's love for money, for fame, for pleasure, to the immense potential of cooperative uses of technology as well. These really are awe-inspiring buildings. And this has really been going on for a very, very long time. What we're seeing in the recent history of our city is a story that's been played out from very early stages of human history. And this brings us to Genesis chapter 11 today and the history of the first tower that was ever erected on earth. Now we've been tracing the biblical theme of two cities 
inspired by two loves journeying on their way to two distinct destinies. In Genesis chapter 4, as we review, and we do so again to try to keep the line rolling through these first chapters of Genesis because they're setting us up so carefully for the rest of the Bible. In fact, if I can jump right to the conclusion, they are setting us up painstakingly for Jesus Christ. And if we do not see this in these early chapters of Genesis, we really miss much of what the Bible is saying, much of the revelation. And so we review a bit again for those that haven't been with us and to keep the thoughts in our mind, and uh, soon we'll break from these reviews, but just remembering these two lines of people, and how one lives out its life in rebellion against God, and how the other lives its life as a community of prayer, seeking to approach God on His terms. Two very different kinds of people, and as structured by God in this early stage of history, tracing down two different lines uh, to lineages or the, the, through these genealogies that point us to those of faith and those who are in rebellion against God. Genesis traces then the city of God as well as the city of man. In Genesis 4, we have the genesis of Cain's city. Cain sought to worship God on Cain's own terms. He murdered his righteous brother Abel because he obeyed God. And then Cain, we know, builds a city. And he names the city after his son. Sounds like a nice thing, but it's an act of arrogance and rebellion. Away from the presence of the Lord, which was in the Garden of Eden. He builds up this city. And what happens? It thrives. Industry develops. And fashion and science and the arts are developed there in the city of Cain. But tracking a different direction, the city of God is also described here in these early chapters. The community of faith that is headed by Abel, the one who offered the worthy sacrifice, who was killed for it as the first martyr, and approached God then on God's terms. Tracking that godly lineage, tracking down that line, Seth replaces Abel who suffered, again, as the first martyr. And God's people, 426, begin to call on the name of the Lord. It seems to be in community. Identifying themselves, not as the builders of a city in rebellion against God, but identifying themselves as those who gather to seek God in dependence and prayer. They are marked not by the city. They are marked by prayer and the one whose city is of another world. Meanwhile... Cain's God-rejecting city prospers. It thrives. It distinguishes itself as a place of growth and industry. And Lamech, we find speaking there in Genesis 4, for Cain's city, he violates God's creative design for sexuality and marriage. He goes his own way with it. He becomes a murderer. And with rebellious arrogance, he proclaims his liberation from any need for God. I'll take care of myself. Genesis 4. This follows with Genesis 5. We say it makes sense now. It's beginning to flow down these two lines. And Genesis chapter 5 is a genealogy which makes sense as it traces out the line of Seth. Adam, Seth replacing Abel and representatives, remembering not every family member, maybe not every generation, but individual representatives of this line stand out, marking out for us where we need to be thinking as we approach the one who will deliver mankind from the curse of sin. So as Genesis 5 bears that out by genealogical support, tracing this lineage, it points us there from Genesis 3.15, the one who will crush Satan's head, down these lines. And there is here another Lamech, which is no mistake. In these ancient texts, parallels are often made to encourage us to see a point that's not specifically made. It is subtly made, but that connection is there as we have another Lamech stepping forward and giving birth to a man named Noah and others as the genealogy goes horizontal there. But before we think on that, we must stop again to consider chapter 6 and the first few verses where the godly line is corrupted by sensuality and worldly philosophy and the holy God is grieved. 
Remember what God's people do here. They go after sensual pleasure. They seek a name for themselves. And in that way, they are following precisely what Cain has done. To seek a name for self. To elevate our own pride. And so God judges with a flood. Noah, in this flood, verse 8 of chapter 6, finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then we see the generations of Noah. A righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walks with God. That connects us to Enoch of of the godly line in chapter 5. Noah too walks with God. And Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And where the genealogy goes horizontal, we are meant to wake up and pay very careful attention here. Back to the thought, verse 11 of chapter 6. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Violence. What are we thinking now? Violence. Lamech. Cain. The murderers. Those who will fight for their own place at the cost of the blood of others, even those who are righteous. It's filled with violence. Behold, I will destroy them in the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And he makes this ark and he is rescued as God judges the earth. We will not take the time to settle on that account But as we come to chapter 9 and Noah's family is spared, this one that God has chosen to rescue humanity from the curse in some way, creates a new altar and there worships the Lord. Where do we see Noah coming off the ark, worshiping? 426, prayer. Marked by prayer and the approach of God, this, in a sense, new Adam now standing on the earth, offers sacrifice to God, and there is again hope that the message of redemption is alive. We come to chapter 10 in what is called the table of nations. So those who survive uh, the flood have children, generation after generation, and those are traced out. You see in chapter 2, verse 10, the sons of Japheth. In verse 6, the sons of Ham. Canaan is mentioned here, and what is very odd in a genealogy like this, it's a bit different than a genealogy, but it's tracing out where the nations are. And you notice in verse 19 that the territory of the Canaanites is mentioned. It marks out a specific place on the earth where this redemption plan will be played out. The borders are even given. And then it ends with Shem. That's interesting. Shem was mentioned first when the sons of Noah are referenced. Now Shem is mentioned last. And it's clear as genealogies are arranged that this is because Shem is the one to really pay attention to. This is the line through which God's redemptive plan will continue. And that's borne out as we get to chapter 12. But before that, the text of Genesis does something a little bit odd. It goes back in time. So Genesis 10, there's a lot of generations that have lived, and we see where they are even living, some of them. But now we go back in time to the early stages after the flood, Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. And we ask, why? Why put this out of order chronologically? Perhaps it is to leave this account ringing in our ears as we consider Where is the city of Cain going? Where is man's kingdom? How do they stand on the earth? They are filled with violence. The judgment has come. But now off the ark, recently delivered from that judgment, here's what we need to see as kind of the final conclusion. And then, chapter 11, verse 10, we're looking at the generations of Shem. So the text is sort of blinking lights at us, saying, Shem, 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 follow this line. And it moves then into chapter 12 and the family of Abraham. So if you're following where this is positioned, not in chronological order, but it's positioned here to get our attention and to say, 
here in one final narrative is the essence of the kingdom of man. From here on out, it will move to Abraham and his family and it will narrow in very tight on that one family right through the rest of Genesis. So we come to a very significant narrative here that's meant to stand as an illustration, as a testament to where the city of man is and how it thinks. So with that in view, this narrative begins and we find the agenda and the spirit of man's city. The stage is set in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 11. Verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. That means all people spoke the same language and shared the same vocabulary. One language, yes, but also only one dialect, one accent, no differing terminologies. Imagine the freedom of that. Clearly understood speech is really, in many respects for human beings, the supreme tool. We might put it into digital form and the like, but human speech is the supreme tool for linking people in collaborative effort and permitting them to work together. That's where the world is at this early stage. Verse 2, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Here's our setting. To the east. Remember again, how do the ancient narratives work? Look for repetition. You can't make a lot out of some of it. Some of it's just natural and not making any particular point. But you have to be awake when you see such repetition if it's intended to draw attention. And here it is. They're moving eastward. What does that remind you of? That's Cain. He moved eastward out of the garden. Now the people are moving eastward off of Mount Ararat where the ark has landed. So emphasizing these crucial points by drawing literary parallels, the reader is to catch this and realize this is a move in the wrong direction. It's not that east is bad and west is good. That's not the point. But in the development of the account and the story, this is a move away from God. And that indeed is exactly where it's headed, as we shall see. And so the linkage here is more than accidental. It is intentional. We are to see these Tower builders in Genesis 11 are the people of Cain City. They have the same spirit and the same agenda. On the graphic in front of us, you can work your way down the line, but just see the tremendous parallels between Cain City and Babel. And as the text is developing, the author purposefully draws these connections and these parallels so that we will link the two in our mind. This is the city of man. It is traveling eastward and is coming to Shinar, which we know to be Mesopotamia. And even in a secular environment, you will be taught this is the birthplace of civilization. We see that perhaps a little bit differently as it is the birthplace of those coming off the ark. But indeed, this is where the earliest civilization was established post-flood. There's nothing necessarily evil about settling in one place. But here we must see it to be an act of rebellion against God's commission to fill the earth, Genesis 1.28. A different orientation than the simple dependence in prayer displayed by God's people. God's people are seen to be those praying and moving heading out into the world on this mission to settle this world for the glory of God. That's God's people. Cain City settles down in direct opposition to that agenda. So the stage is set in verses 1 and 2, and then the plan is hatched in verse 3. And they said to one another, now having settled there in Mesopotamia, they say to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. This editorial note here at the end, uh, brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, it's, it's probably helping the Hebrews understand. But I think it's also intended to be a little condescending. They just had mud bricks, not the great stones that we used to build, that we've seen used to build. The cities that we have built as the slaves of Pharaoh, 
Not that, they just had mud bricks and they put it together with tar. So it's an early stage and it almost laughs a little bit at these builders with their elementary technologies, but nonetheless, they put together their Lego set. They got all their little pieces of bricks and they begin to put it together and to establish this tower. They're baked and they build something colossal with those bricks. Verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We see the agenda laid out here, the plan, very clearly. It is a monstrous rebellion against God. That's how we should be taking it and seeing it. Let us build ourselves a city. Now, in ancient terms, when you heard city, it just meant one thing. It didn't mean massive numbers of people. What city meant was a wall. There was a wall circled for protection, and that was a city. What they are doing here, rather than filling the earth as pioneers, they are seeking to follow their father Cain and to construct a wall of protection, the identifying feature of an ancient city. We will build a wall, we will build a city. Secondly, verse 4, we will build a tower. Here, they propose to invade heaven. I think we understand this to be figurative. They weren't dumb people, half-evolved. They were very bright people, and they realized that they couldn't go into the abode of God by just building higher. But they do intend, in their foolishness and irreverence, to invade celestial places. Whatever they were thinking entirely, we know that they're exuding titanic arrogance here. We will build a tower and we will come up into the presence of God. What it is saying is this. We can occupy the heavens. We can occupy the place of God and we don't need to talk to Him. We don't need prayer We don't need proper sacrifice. We don't need a right view of God. We, in our own human ingenuity, will find a way to enter into the realm of God. It is a way of self-deification. They're acting like little gods. And they build their tower into the heavens. Their third act of rebellion is that they build together in order to make a name for themselves. And I encourage you to focus on that, and we will some of us later this afternoon as we think on this verse, let us make a name for ourselves. This is a crucial statement. Morales says a name is the deepest impulse for constructing a city. Making yourself a name is the deepest impulse for constructing a city. And this itself would connect with us if we'd had the time to work our way through chapter 10, first of all. But chapter 10 and verse 21. To Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Shem is related to the Hebrew word for name. Put that together. We will make a name for ourselves. God chooses a man named Name. God has made a name for His people. His name is made out of a person. Their name is made out of bricks. I don't think that's a mistake. I think the connection is meant to be seen in their folly, in their irrationality, in their rebellion against God. They trust in bricks rather than in the provision of God who has a name who has Shem and his name, and through his name, salvation will come. So the godly line that Genesis marks out points God's people to their hope in a name, in a person who will deliver God's people from the curse. Cain's people set their hope in a city that would glorify their own name. One agenda is salvation and eternal. The other agenda is temporary and it will fail. But they say, in this spot, better to live together for our own glory than to live separately in dependence on God, seeking the name of the person that He will provide. We'll take care of this our way. I'll do it, 
my way. That's the spirit of the city. All right, let's stop for a moment and go, what's Genesis got against cities? What's wrong with a city? Some interpreters take this and say, well, you have to understand this is just ancient text. The Hebrews did not want to get oriented towards cities for any number of reasons. And this is all past and all to be set aside. They just had this problem with cities and urban life. They wanted to promote um, rural life and pastoral life and that kind of thing. I think they're completely missing the point. I mean, just read the rest of the Bible. Does God have a problem with cities? Where does it end? One sociologist has said that cities are the absence of physical space between people. And that's in some sense all that they are. They're the absence of physical space between people. All the things that happen out there in the rest of the world are just brought really closely together in cities. By ancient standards, cities were always walled, as I said. They were not very large, but they brought people together in tight locations. The average ancient city was about two to three times the size of our church's property. So most of us would have a pretty good sense of what that means going over here and over here. Triple it at the most and put a wall around it. That was a city. To look at the density levels, if our church property was a city, we went around the boundary and put a wall around it, there'd be a thousand people living inside. That's the density of the people in a normal ancient city of that time. It just reduces the distance. And that density then does two things. It embraces human collaboration and innovation. It helps the process of people working together and that can be very good and it can be very bad it's not the city that's the problem it's almost like some of those people reading this text and saying oh the ancient hebrews had a problem with cities and they just wanted to discard it that's like saying there's something wrong with marriage because people get divorced marriage is evil let's throw it out we don't need it because there's all this pain it's not marriage that's the problem the people in the marriage that's the problem. The city's not the problem. The problem is the people in the city and the distance that's cut down so that depravity has the ability to take quicker root and go much further in the city, as does good. But here on the plain of Shinar, the city becomes a collaborative effort to magnify man and domesticate God, to control God. And so this tower is built, probably something in the range of what we know today to be a ziggurat, which was a series of steps reaching up into the sky. The later idea, and so maybe some of that's here, this is the first one, but the later idea was that it was kind of a landing pad for the gods. They would even often paint the top of these towers blue to sort of mesh into the sky and try to lure the god down onto the platform. Then they made these nice convenient steps that the god could walk down the steps and into the worship center, the sanctuary of the ziggurat. These towers in later history were seen then as the connecting point between heaven and earth. It is the epitome of man's religion. We will reach up to you. We will reach up to the skies and we will define how you will treat us as far as we're able. We'll try to appease you. We'll try to control you. We will try to do everything that we can to get the divine realm to do what we want. That was the ancient religion and that is the religions of our world today. But the key here is that the tower is intended to rise high in God's direction so as to bring glory to man's name. That is to man's glory. Walkie writes, the skyscraper is a symbol of their united, titanic, societal self-assertion against God. He commands them to fill the earth. They say, we'll build a tower right here behind our city wall. Now again, what does God have against cities? 
Nothing, it's the people in them. There's nothing evil about tall buildings. There's nothing evil about technology. Unless it's Facebook. That was a joke. There's nothing sinful about working on innovative projects with others in a city. What is evil is using such technologies to the glory of our own names. Let me say that again. It's using technologies to the glory of our own names. And thus, Facebook can be an evil. The spirit that stiffens its neck against God is always the spirit that elevates man's glory. Most of us are never going to have a tower to name after ourselves. There's no Trump Tower in our futures. But we can be severely tempted to use social media as a tool of self-promotion and image creation that is equally self-magnifying. All we have in front of us is a computer screen to announce our glories to the world as we control it and as we set it up because that's all we've got. But given the power to build a tower, that same spirit would lead us to do it. The technologies can be simple. The technologies can be grand. The whole agenda is to lift up the name of man. To put my name in lights. That's the spirit of this world. That's the city of Cain and the city of Babel. So, throw social media out? No. Use it redemptively. I encourage those of you who spend time with such technologies, use it to build others up in faith. Use it to promote what is good. Use it to the honor of God. And if you say, I don't get that, how can something so mundane be used for the glory of God? Stop using it until you figure that out. There's no technology that has ever been put in our hands that is not made for the glory of God. None. And when we begin to use technologies for our own glory, much trouble comes. So be warned by an ancient, ancient text. That excitement and anxiousness that you may feel to make yourself look good, to tell the world what you are doing as if you are supremely important, to boast, to rage, to pontificate as if you're the king of the earth, at least your little land, be very, very careful. That may be nothing less than the spirit of Cain talking right through your fingers. Many other points could receive an application here. The technologies that go with possessions, that go with investments, that go with career accomplishments, that go with family members, and the idolization that can come. Be very careful. Be very careful. Because as we see and are warned here, the Lord condemns the project. We see the setting. We see the plan that is hatched. In fact, it begins. A city is being built. A tower is being built. But the Lord condemns the project. Verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The Lord came down. The narrative does not end with a ribbon-cutting ceremony. It doesn't end with grand celebrations of the tower's completion It's not in lights to proclaim man's name. It does not end with the ambition of fallen man. It ends with the intervention of a sovereign God. Which direction does the building go? It goes up. But notice God must come down to see it. As one author writes, this was supposed to be a building invading celestial heights. But as another has noted, Yahweh must draw near, not because he's nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height and their work is so tiny. 
God's movement must therefore be understood as a remarkable satire on man's doing. They build up. He comes down to see it. This is so vital for us. It's not just a story we're looking at from a distance. This changes our whole orientation in this world. We see these billion dollar stadiums and we see these massive towers and we go, cool! And that's it! It's nothing. It's puny compared to the Lord that we serve. We have no tower and lights, but we have a God who looks down on these things as tiny and insignificant. And that's our God. The city is built by earthlings. The Lord of heaven's throne now speaks with authority. They had their plan. Verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I, I don't know what that means. Nothing impossible for them, but God knows it's not good that things stay the way that they are. How much would be possible? We certainly you know, we have an imagination. We can begin to think about it. But God knows in His wisdom that we can't have that world. And He took it away from us. We have the world we have now. They had demonstrated what they could do to rebel against God in community. God moves to mercifully limit the potential of collaborative evil in global solidarity. Genesis 6-5, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I have to twist that. For the good of people. So God deliberating says, come, verse 7, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech against man's collaboration to construct a tower with bricks God determines to deconstruct the ultimate technology of human language so as to limit the potential for evil. The curse of not being able to communicate blows up the project. So the Lord deliberates, He decides, and then, verses 8 and 9, He scatters the rebels. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. We see the emphasis on dispersal. The middle of verse 4, we want a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. Every effort they were putting forward was to not be dispersed, was to hold together God disperses them. The sovereign God decides differently. And disperse reference there in verse 8 and also toward the end of verse 9, a key emphasis. The place is called Babel in verse 9. The gate of heaven or the gate of God. But for God's people, the word is a pun for the similarly sounding word meaning confusion. Babel. So we see that God does not destroy the tower. The rebels will build many, many more of these. What God chooses to topple and limit is the power of human language. And we've had a millennia, we've had a number of millennia to get used to language barriers in our world, but for these people, that change had to be terrifying and even dangerous. So now people who set out to gather and unite are scattered and dispersed in fear and suspicion. They get the picture of them uh, in a literary way, not physical, but literary way. Just They're all backing away with sword point in front, scared of one another, heading off, gathering with those that they can understand and saying, we've got to get together because we have to communicate in order to see our cities built. But we don't know about these people, what, what's going on there. And the world is divided. They're dispersed, as Walkie puts it, the centripetal force that drew them together had been replaced with the centrifugal force of God's cure, of God's curse, rather, pulling them apart. So against their strongest intentions, people left off building the city. 
It was supposed to harbor them as one. It was supposed to bring glory and honor to their name. But now the city was abandoned and the people scattered. It was a severe mercy, resisting man's capacity to destroy himself by defying God and His ways. And maybe in some sense, and I don't want to make a direct parallel, but I think there's a spirit here, a parallel with the United Nations of our day. It represents the near universal belief. This is it. Global peace is the ultimate path to prosperity. You lay that out there for people and they say, well, absolutely, global peace is the ultimate path to prosperity. You ever seen the bumper sticker? Visualize world peace. What should a child of God see in this fallen world visualizing world peace? What we should visualize is a rebellion against God. God in His mercy won't let that happen. And He sets it aside by confusing languages. Because the only peace the UN could achieve is a peace without the Prince of Peace. The outcome would be monstrous rebellion and total implosion. Do we love war? No. War is a result of sin. But we also recognize in war, this is God's severe mercy to keep us from going to war together in complete lockstep against Him. And the monstrous destruction that would come from that would be overwhelmingly evil. Why do people go to war? Here's a different answer. Sin is one. The other answer, God is a God of mercy. Where the nations of the world war against one another, they are kept from uniting against the Prince of Peace. And that permits time for people to respond in repentance and trust. Cain's offspring saw Babel, or Babylon, as the treasure of civilization. God's people poke fun at this crown jewel, picturing it as a symbol of confusion. And the literary play here is huge. But the, even the word there in the Hebrew, sham, creates a sound linkage to the word shame, which means name, to shem, which is related to name. They wanted to make a name, shame, for themselves, but ended up being expelled from sham, from there. They're gone their name and its glorification is over. We move now to this question. What will He do with the scattered people? He will not destroy them with a flood. He has told them this. But will He rescue them from their fearful isolation, from the rebellion that is in their souls? They want a shame. Hebrew name. They've been sent from Sham. From there, where's the answer? Here it is. These, verse 10, are the generations of Shem. A name for themselves, scattered from there, God introduces Shem. Here is the answer. Here is the glory. Here is the hope in a name, in a person, not in your brick building. As we think on these matters and apply them appropriately, we have to come to terms with technology and cities and the like. And I think we've done that throughout our conversation here this morning. But as God's people, we labor with the world to subdue the earth. We labor with the world. We go to work. We go, some of us, to those towers downtown. And we work there. and We labor there to subdue the earth with unbelievers. But we do so redemptively and for the glory of Christ. And there is an agenda. We don't always announce it. It doesn't always come into play in our workday world. But everything that we do is for the glory of the name. And it's not ours. And that puts us into some tough spots with people that are working for the glory of their own name. And some of you talk to me about that as we relate and discuss our work situations. You're with people that are laboring for the love of money. You're with people that are laboring for their own pride and purpose. You are there 
as salt and light laboring for another name. And it puts us at odds many times. We must understand the spirit of this age. We must understand that we labor among the Canaanites. We labor among man's city and for God's city. And we are not parroting the spirit of this age. It doesn't breathe from us. And people are going to recognize that at times. We don't flee the city. We don't flee technology. We use technology and we work in the city for its good and for the glory of Christ. But oh, how different is our spirit. In fact, if somebody would say Babel's spirit, this is an old ancient story that's all past. It's got nothing to do with us. For something so old, it's amazing how spot on it is with the spirit of the age. Humanist Manifesto says this. Think of it in light of Genesis 11. Humanity to survive requires bold and daring measures. Only a shared world and global measures will suffice. A humanist outlook will tap the creativity of each human being and provide the vision and courage for us to work together. We deplore the division of humankind on nationalistic grounds. What's nationalistic grounds? Nation fighting nation. We deplore that. We have reached a turning point in human history where the best option is to transcend the limits of national sovereignty and to move toward the building of a world community. This is always how people talk. This is absolutely laughable. It's embarrassing. But they always talk about we've come to this new place. Come to this new place that's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. The same exact agenda. But they feel good about themselves to write this on this document. It's all brand new. Here we go, building a world community. Who's ever heard of that? A world community in which all sectors of the human family can participate. Thus we look to the development of a system of world law and a world order. Human progress can no longer be achieved by focusing on one section of the world. No part of humankind can be isolated from any other. Each person's future is in some way linked to all. We thus reaffirm a commitment to the building of a world community. Now, I don't think Genesis 11 is all that outdated. And coupled to this, which is written largely from the standpoint of government and politics, is the same agenda taking place among religious peoples in ecumenism which seeks to unite all religions on some supposed common ground. I don't remember where I read that, but read it here just this week, of those suggesting that we can really do this. We can bring all the religions together in one. What happens when the governments join? What happens when one world religion takes over? What happens is that the Prince of Peace is gone, unneeded, No deliver. Genesis 3.15, just exit right out of the Bible. There's no need to crush the serpent's head. We're good on our own. You can leave us alone, God. We have this covered. A one world political order is the agitated, aggressive effort of many. One religion is the passion of many. And it'll happen. It'll be run not by the Christ of Shem's line. It will be run by the Antichrist. Are cities evil? Is technology evil? Some people say yes. I think they're wrong. Others romanticize the city. What we need to recognize is the city is lost. It's lost without Christ. What we need to do is set aside those ideas of isolationism and running away and go to Jesus who sent out the good news from village to village. Who ended his life in the city of Jerusalem. To the Apostle Paul who stormed the cities of the ancient world to proclaim the Savior. 
Cities put people closer together, shortening the distance between depraved hearts. And so cities are a place where depravity is really entrenched. But they are then the places where the gospel can come to bear more quickly on more people, sending them out with the message of the Savior that God has provided. When the gospel of Jesus Christ exploded out of the city of Jerusalem, it went quickly to the cities of the ancient world. And we take it to the cities of our world. We don't run from those cities. We go into those dark places with light and we live our everyday life here in that darkness, shining as light pointing to Christ. We serve another city, and that's the whole thing. With Abraham, who we'll in this series look at more carefully, but we serve a different city, a city whose foundation and maker is God. And we serve a different name. Laboring along others, seeking to subdue the earth, we do so not for the glory of our name, But there is, as we know, salvation in no other name. There is one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Bearing the weight of sin. The agenda is not to reach into the heavens on your own, on your terms, doing it your way, but to seek in Christ who died to pay the penalty of sin, the salvation and deliverance and forgiveness of sin that is so vital, and to know that He defeated death, the ultimate curse for sin. There is salvation in no other name, for there is no name given among men by which we must be saved. Maybe you're approaching God on your terms. Maybe you say in small ways, not building any towers with my name and lights, but in small ways, I can see, I think you're right. I'm serving my own name, my own self, my own glory. Everything's about me. And I realize how horribly small I am. There is a name that is above every name. There is a name that these ancient texts are pointing us toward, and that is the name of Jesus Christ and His work of crucifixion for our sin and resurrection in defeat of the curse. That's where it's pointing us. And we then gather in humble submission, not as the city of Cain, not as the city of Babel. We gather here now as the city of God. Heading toward that final city, as a people marked chapter 4 and verse 26 by prayer. We humbly live each day for the glory of His name and in dependence upon His power. If that's not where you are, you find yourself serving your own little name, there's a great name. There's a name above every name and we invite you as a church to come to Christ today. And to embrace Him as Lord and Savior. We can help further with that. We can't do it for you. You don't buy it. You don't take any particular classes. But we'll talk with you through it. If you say, I think that's me. Christ is calling out a people for His name among the nations. And He is establishing His own city. Maybe this morning... He's inviting you. Come to His city. Come to the Savior today.